yesterday, and the group that did the event decorated, and it takes some getting used to look out at the, uh, the decorations there. So thankful again that the ladies could come together and enjoy a time of fellowship. Of course, they had good food, good time in the Word. So. All right, today we are going to continue as we look at the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, I told my wife after I finished everything, I said I, I cut the message in half. So you guys are getting half of this. Uh, you'll thank me for that, I'm sure. So Matthew 6, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, as we look at this uh, pattern of prayer that the Lord gives us, He wants us to pray rightly as we seek to live in the already, not yet, as we live as children uh, of the kingdom already, living, awaiting the consummation of the kingdom when Christ returns. And we need to pray. Jesus told a parable of a, a widow who wasn't getting justice, and she goes to the judge and begs and begs, and the judge is beginning to get scared because the widow continues to beg and beg and beg, and finally he relents and gives her what she wants. And Jesus is teaching us you know, to pray and don't give up. But at the end of that parable, he says, will I find faith on the earth when I return? In other words, will you be praying? Will you be praying as you await my return, as you await the consummation of the kingdom? In Matthew chapter 6, we're going to look specifically at verse 10 today, really the first part of verse 10. We'll see this in just a second. Then this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So this morning we want to look at what does it mean when Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word that it is true. As we read in Psalm 11, what do the righteous do when the foundations are being destroyed? Lord, we believe that your word is the foundation for our life, and we want to hold steadfastly to your word. Father, we know that your word cannot erode because it is eternal. The grass will wither, the flowers will fade, but your word will stand forever. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning. We want to learn from your word. We want to be taught. We pray that your spirit would teach us this morning, and you would apply it to our lives for your glory, that your name would be hallowed on this earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it mean to pray your kingdom come? Remember last week we looked at that expression, hallowed be your name, that we want the name of God to be preeminent, set apart uh, in the world. We want God to be glorified in and through our lives, in the church, in the world around us. We want his greatness and his goodness to be manifest into the world. And the other requests that we're going to look at really flow from that. God's name will be hallowed as his kingdom comes. So we need to understand what does it mean when we pray, your kingdom done. And as we'll see next week, what does it mean when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I look out at you this morning, I, don't, I know most of you fairly well, some of you I don't really know at all, but I know certain things about you for sure. That is that you are created in the image of God. You have infinite value and worth because 
You are an image bearer, created in God's image. And part of being created in God's image is that you have an innate knowledge of, of right. God's placed it on your heart. What right is, what righteousness is. Certainly sin has distorted that, but within all of us, there's a sense of, well, this is right, this is wrong, okay, according to God's Word. So we have this longing for things to be right. We don't want broken things. We want things to be the way they should be. I know that you desire righteousness. You desire for things to be right. It's just something that's a yearning within you. We all have this sense of things aren't really the way they should be. I need to make them better. I can't make them better. I wish somebody would make things better. I wish there were speed bumps on the streets of Hamtramck. It's just not right that people fly up and down the streets endangering the lives of innocent people. It's just not right. I want things to be right because the world is broken. The world is broken. It's, uh, before, as we've looked at this concept of the kingdom, we've talked about the brokenness of the world. Disease and death. God did not create the world with the disease and death. Depending upon which statistics you look at, COVID took the lives of 6.9 million people. What war? There's always war going on, right? Depending upon how politically expedient the war is or isn't will determine how much we see in our news feed concerning the war. And certainly we're seeing about what's going on over in Gaza and Israel. It's not right that things should be that way. When we were in Israel, uh, one day we were able to visit the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And as we were walking through this section that gave descriptions of the lives of people that were, that were taken in the Holocaust, we're walking across the floor, and there's this transparent section of the floor. It's, it's, it's hard glass, plastic. And you walk across this section of the floor, and underneath your feet, there are just hundreds of shoes and these shoes belong to children that were killed in the genocide, what we call the Holocaust. It's not right. Things should not be that way. The other genocide that nobody wants to talk about in our country is the genocide called abortion. Since Roe v. Wade was passed, it's been overturned, but when it, in 1970, if you move forward, 63,459,781 lives taken in the womb. It's not right. It shouldn't be that way. As we live in an urban environment, as we go towards the service drive, we're confronted by people racked by drug abuse and alcoholism living on the streets. It's not right. It shouldn't be that way. According to one survey or research article that I read, 42 million people in 2020 filled a prescription for antidepressants. I'm not saying the rightness or wrongness of doing that, okay? I'm just saying 42 million people need antidepressants for one reason or another. It's not right. It shouldn't be that way. 
You could go on and on. Look at all the brokenness in the world around us. It's not right, and it shouldn't be that way. It seems like our world is moving towards implosion. It shouldn't be that way. It's not right. There is within every person a longing for righteousness. We want that. A longing for one who will introduce and uphold righteousness in our world forever. We long for that. We have within us a linear understanding of history that we're moving towards an end. What's going to happen at the end? We want it to be right at the end. And so we long for that time and that place where all things are made right. So we pray and we cry out, Come quickly, Lord, your kingdom come. So again, what does it mean when we pray, your kingdom come? When we look at the concept of kingdom, one Bible dictionary gives this definition. The concept of king, God's kingly or sovereign rule encompassing both the realm the area over which rule is exerted, and the exercise of the authority to reign, right? So there is, it's understood that there is, uh, we would say on earth, a geographical understanding that there are people within that geography and there is the authority to rule over to determine what is right or wrong in that realm. That's the kingdom. There's a king There are subjects, and there is land, and there is law. As we look at the biblical meta-narrative, I like saying big words because it makes me look good. Like, I had to go to seminary to learn the word meta-narrative. It's just the story that really kind of pulls the Bible together, right? It's It's a consistent theme throughout the Bible. And this concept of kingdom really runs from Genesis to Revelation, It's a part of the Bible story. Adam and Eve in the garden. We'll talk about this in a minute. Kingdom moving towards the celestial kingdom. A kingdom of righteousness. So as we look at the concept of kingdom, again, we need to begin in the garden. This is is a picture of some idyllic place where there's no sin. God created Adam and Eve. He placed them in the garden. There was no sin. God is the king. Adam is, is, is God's agent on earth. He is the one who was supposed to rule over creation. So when God creates Adam and Eve, when he created Adam, he said, I want you to rule over everything. I want you to rule over it and subdue it. We call it the dominion mandate. This is a dominion. This is a kingdom. You represent me here on this earth. You're my vice regent. You are here to rule over what I have created. And we see this when Adam created the animal, when he named the animals, right? You rule over them, you name them. The dominion mandate. Well, Adam and Eve rejected God's rule as king. So they were sent out of Eden. They were separated from God because they rejected God's kingly rule. And so from that moment on, 
the biblical narrative or the meta narrative is God restoring that kingdom that existed in the garden when Adam and Eve were there and they had this immediate relationship with God. That's the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible is God bringing that back. He's restoring that kingdom to us. We see again and again through the Bible this theme of God's kingly rule over his people, God's desire to set up a kingdom. As we jump way forward in biblical history, we see God's children, this nation that he created out of the people in bondage, he brings them out into the wilderness. He sets up this system of worship, and God is the king, and he's given them his law. He says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, I'm king over this realm, this dominion, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. You will mediate between me and the people. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So as God sets up this nation in Exodus, he tells them, I'm making you a kingdom. I am your king. You are priests. You are a nation. But this is a kingdom. And as you follow the story of the Bible, God leads them into the promised land. This is going to be their kingdom. He gives them everything they need as a kingdom. He's their God. They have his law. They have the land. They have all that they need. And what did they do? They rejected the rule of God as their king. And we read in the book of Judges, every man did what was right in their own eyes because there's no king. Well, through the book of Judges, the people manifest their desire for a king. And we get to Samuel, and they cry out for a king. And God says, okay, I'll give you a king for the kingdom. You reject me as king, I'll give you an earthly king. First king was Saul. Saul did not obey God. He didn't submit to God. And Samuel says, in the midst of Saul's failure, if you had just obeyed me, then you would have had a kingdom that would have endured forever. Because you didn't obey me, I'm taking that from you and giving it to another. And he gives it to David. And he makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says this, this, I'm sorry, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Right? David wanted to build a beautiful house for God. And God said, no, you're not going to build a house, your son will. But guess what? I have something better for you. There will always be somebody from the house of David on the throne ruling over my kingdom. So we see this beautiful promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so the line of the kings is established. And First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles teach us that the kings rejected God's rule over them. God had given the kings his law, and he said, King, you need to know the law. You need to read the law every year. You need to rule this nation based on the law. And they rejected God as king. They rejected his rule. But God was patient. He had made a promise. We call this the Davidic covenant. He had determined that he was going to spare a remnant, the line of Messiah, the line of the coming 
king. Well, God's people continued to reject his rule over them, and he sent them into captivity like he said he would. And when he sent them into captivity, he gave them the beautiful gift of a prophet named Daniel and his prophecy. And as the captivities were sitting over in Babylonia, seeing what's going on in the world around them, remembering the promises of God, that he made a covenant with them, that he was going to make them a kingdom, that they were going to be his people. They remembered the promises. They're like, God, you said somebody would always be on David's throne. What's happening? And David, through uh, God, through Daniel, says, look, nations are going to rise. Nations are going to fall. The Babylonian Empire is going to rise. It's going to fall. The Mede and Persian Empire is going to rise. It's going to fall. The Greek Empire is going to rise. It's going to fall. The Roman Empire, rise and fall. But there is coming a king whose kingdom will endure forever. And we read about this in Daniel chapter 7, this vision that he has. He was given authority. I'm sorry. In, the, in my vision at night, I looked, and there was before me, before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and he was led into his presence. Right? So we know that Jesus' favorite name for himself was Son of Man. This is full of messianic overtones. He was relating to us as a human when he called himself Son of Man. But when he called himself Son of Man, the minds of those listening had to go to Daniel chapter 7. And so we have this one like a son of man that comes to the ancient of days. God the Father. We continue in the text. He was given, this son of man was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the message that the people in captivity needed to hear, that they had not been forgotten. Things were not right. They wanted things to be made right. Who is the one who's going to make things right? The king, the Messiah. Daniel continues. He says, Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the rulers will worship and obey him. God hadn't forgotten his promise to his people to keep a king on David's throne, to establish a kingdom for his people. Well, as the story goes, the people returned from captivity. They kind of stopped doing the sin of you know, making idols and putting them in the temple area. But they became pharisaical in their religion. And so we have silence after the book of Malachi. 400 years of silence. And then there's one who was born in a city called Bethlehem, the town of David. The line of Joseph. The line of David. The line of Abraham. And this one who was born of Mary, a virgin, grew in wisdom and stature and faith, uh, favor with God and man. And he was baptized and he began to preach. And this was his message. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom 
of heaven has come near. So we see this concept of heaven as a kingdom is brought together with this word heaven. And Jesus says, repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Well, how could he say that? Well, because he's the king. And where the king is, there's a kingdom. The king was near. And Jesus began to perform many miracles consistent with the Messiah as foretold in the prophets, this one who would be king. I wanted to go through just example after example that verified and validated Jesus' messianic office that proved that he truly is the king. But that'll be another message. But Jesus preached the nearness of this kingdom. When Jesus spoke about the kingdom to the average Jew or Israelite that was listening, you know what came to their mind? It was Daniel. It was Isaiah. There's a kingdom that we're waiting for. Simeon, right after Jesus was born, was waiting in the temple for what? The consolation of Israel, the kingdom for Israel. At the end of the Gospels, Joseph of Arimathea was one that was called, was also waiting for the kingdom of God as he prepared to bury the king sent from God. So Jesus, all through the Gospels, all through his teaching, speaks of the kingdom. We have the kingdom parables, the the parables of being ready for the coming kingdom. And just before he's crucified, he has this conversation with Pontius Pilate, who's trying to pepper him because he says, Pontius Pilate says, hey, you know what? The people who brought you to me, they're saying that you're trying to usurp the authority of Rome, that you claim to be a king. Are you a king? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Not of this world, at least not now anyway. If it were, my servants would prevent, I'm sorry, my servants would fight and pre- to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, but now, at this point, now, right now, my kingdom is from another place. The sun came from the kingdom of heaven to earth. Now wasn't the time for Jesus' kingdom to be on earth. So it wasn't his time to fight. That would be held for another time. The time for Jesus to fight is given to us in Revelation chapter 19. John writes this, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and, his head, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The picture here is a king coming victoriously. Revelation continues. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. This is interesting, I found. He sees this picture of these thrones. What is he talking about here? Well, if you were to jump back into the Gospels, Jesus is interacting with his disciples. He says, Jesus says, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, at the consummation of the kingdom, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is exactly what is being spoken of here. 
I saw thrones in which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image, and they had received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's a reign, there's a rule, there's a king, there's a kingdom. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God in Christ and what will reign with him for a thousand years. All right, so my understanding of the end times or eschatology is that there is a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. That he will, we talked about this a few weeks ago, after he touches down on the Mount of Olives, it splits wide open, water gushes forth from the Dead Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, he comes into the temple and he sits on the throne. That's the throne of David. That's my understanding. I don't want you to focus on that right now. What I want you to focus on is the fact that the kingdom will be consummated. Whether you think there is no kingdom, whether you think there is no thousand-year reign of Christ, whatever you think about that, it's scriptural that Christ is going to return, right? In our statement of faith, we have, we believe in a final resurrection of both the saved and the lost, one to life eternal and the other to eternal condemnation. That's what we say about the end times. And so what we believe is that Christ is going to return. That's what I want, to, want you to focus on, that he will return. He will return and rule righteously over his kingdom. And we will reign with him in that kingdom that's coming. His kingdom from heaven will come to earth when he returns. Revelation eleven fifteen, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Christ will return. He will set up his kingdom. He will right all the wrongs. He will destroy evil. He will destroy all those opposed to God, and he will set up a throne of righteousness. That's what we long for. We want this to be gone. And as we read the prophets, the prophets, Isaiah, he clearly tells us of a time on this earth when it is refurbished, when disease is decimated, when the lame walk and the blind see. As Amos says, when the reaper overtakes the one who is planting. We long for this. We long for the consummation of the kingdom because we want righteousness. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're praying, your kingdom come, Maranatha. I don't want things to stay the way they are. I want your name to be hallowed on this earth as it ought to be hallowed. It's not being hallowed right now. Your name is not being glorified by those that you've created in your image. We want it to be glorified. And it will be when Christ returns. So that's why we pray, your kingdom come. To pray, your kingdom come, is to pray for the return of Christ and the righteous rule of his kingdom. That's what we're praying. 
Jesus, I want you to rule over this earth. I want your righteousness to be manifest in this world. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying that history would be brought to a close. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying to see all nations rejoice in the glory of God. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying to see Christ honored as king in every human heart. And that's going to be next week's message. Because there is a sense in which the kingdom has been initiated within us. Because the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. There is a spiritual transference. Jesus Christ is set apart as Lord in your heart. So yeah, there is an already, but this consummation is not yet, and we're living in the in-between. So we pray for the kingdom to come, and we do that. We're praying that Satan would be bound, evil would be vanquished, and death would be no more. We're praying to see the mercy of God demonstrated in the full justification and acquittal of sinners through the shed blood of the crucified and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying that the wrath of God would be poured out upon sin and sinners. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God of the Father. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying to see the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, the new creation. I'm praying for that thousand-year rule of Christ, where I get to go to all those places on this earth that I've never been to before and serve him faithfully. The kingdom is the place that you want to be. Next week, I'm going to talk more about how to enter into the kingdom. Because this is an evangelistic prayer as well. I'm fascinated by the story in Luke 23, Jesus' crucifixion. Beautiful, beautiful picture of Jesus' compassion and mercy. So it's going to be a longer section here, but I'm going to read it. Jesus has been crucified. He's hanging on the cross in brutal agony. I want you to picture, I mean, the fact that conversations are going on and that Jesus is able to carry himself is amazing because he is fully human, right? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said to those crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They were so concerned about what Jesus said, they divided up his clothes. They started casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at Jesus. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. He's God's Messiah. If he's that king that's supposed to come, the chosen one, let him save himself. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. And he said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Irony is so rich here. 
They're crucifying their creator, the king of the universe. And he lets them do that. One of the criminals who hung their whole insult, insults at him, aren't you the Messiah? Save us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God since you were under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. So he'd heard the story. He must have heard about the trial. Maybe he heard about his ministry. Maybe he heard about his teachings. He knew there was nothing for which this man deserved to be crucified, this man being Jesus. And so this criminal who understands that he was being punished justly turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Please don't forget about me. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me there. I think I twisted up. You will be with me today in paradise. Jesus invited him into the kingdom. You'll be with me there today in paradise, he said. So Jesus clearly indicates here that he is the way into the kingdom. Not only is he the king, he is the one who grants entrance into the kingdom. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life, right? I'm going to be leaving you. Where are you going, Jesus? We don't know where you're going. How do we get there? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the way into the kingdom. Next week, we'll see the entrance into the kingdom through Jesus. We'll study that a little bit more. But as we consider the reign of Christ, the coming kingdom, the time of righteousness, Al Mohler says this, the reign of Christ is the reign of a true king, one who demands allegiance, one who will disrupt the order of our lives, one who will call us to abandon our own pursuits for the sake of his. Thus, when we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying something incredibly dangerous because it imperils our comfort and devalues our ease. By praying, your kingdom come, Jesus teaches us that we are ultimately meant to value God's agenda, not our own. By making God's kingdom paramount in our hearts, we are setting aside our own paltry attempts at personal glory to pursue the glory of King Jesus. So it's not only your kingdom come, it's your will be done. So next week as we open up the word of God, we'll look at that concept of your will be done as we submit to the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. To pray your kingdom come is to pray for the return of Christ and the righteous rule of his kingdom. Amen? Amen. I hope you're looking forward to that day. Maranatha. Let's pray, and we're going to sing together uh, Hallelujah for the Cross. Hallelujah for the Cross. And as you sing this song, I want you to think about what we just read from Luke chapter 23, Jesus being on the cross, opening up the way for salvation opening up the way for salvation. Because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he wasn't just dying because people misunderstood his ministry. He was dying to take away our sins, to give us the new birth so that we can enter into the kingdom. And that's why we say hallelujah for the cross.
Let's pray, and then we'll sing together. Father, we thank you so much for the concept of the kingdom, the promise of the kingdom, the way your word so clearly teaches us about the kingdom from start to finish. I pray that our hearts would be turned towards Jesus Christ, the King, as we sing this song. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, stand together.